we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Harvey Risch, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. Today, we're continuing our weekly series with various informed and interesting people. We usually talk about science and COVID topics, but that is really our only starting point. And if listeners have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse, P-U-L-S-E. I'm pleased to introduce today's guest, Dr. Paul Alexander, who is a clinical epidemiologist with specialized experience in bioterrorism and biowarfare. Dr. Alexander has worked for the WHO, the Pan American Health Organization, the Infectious Diseases Society of America, for Health Canada and the Public Health Agency of Canada, and was a senior COVID-19 pandemic advisor to the president during much of 2020. Well, Paul, let's begin. What's been on your mind lately? Well, Dr. Rich, uh, what an honor and a pleasure, <clears throat> a privilege to be able to speak with someone like yourself. I've always said when I speak out and when I write that um, you, you from the very beginning, three years now, I mean, I'm not even talking about your work before, but I'm just talking about in terms of this pandemic response. You've been very uh, outspoken and prescient on many of the issues and correct. And uh, because there have been a lot of mistakes and I have been one who's been pushing back. And um, I'm so honored and privileged to be, I would say when I say on your team, at least we are like-minded and um, I consider yourself a mentor to me. So, so I think um, the public at this point, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to say it out loud that from my point of view, um, very early on, when we looked at maybe about two to three weeks out of the pandemic lockdown from around March 15, 16 of 2020, when the when, uh, United States locked down, and we were getting data already from across the world and, and indications that <clears throat> COVID was amenable to risk stratification and that uh, your baseline risk basically was prognostic on the severity of outcomes. So that means that that meant that a low-risk person, like a young person, particularly, we, we saw a pronounced age risk stratified, like a sort of a, 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 a very steep curve where the young infants, young children, teens, et cetera, had a much appreciable lower risk uh, than elderly persons, particularly with underlying medical conditions. And I think this was lost this was not properly articulated to the population. So out of the gate, the population was confused and scared because of, of the messaging. And uh, I have always felt that this was not really a pandemic in a classical sense because of the fact that, you know, <clears throat> we knew that lockdowns would have not worked. We knew that you couldn't get ahead of a respiratory pathogen with that measure, including a um, they intended a vaccine. And um, also, I think that this was a very serious issue because we can't deny that something happened. And, you know, that's where we're going to have a lot of people in your audience and a lot of experts for decades going to be discussing 
you know, what really happened? Is it a coronavirus? Was it a virus? What kind of virus? Um, what kind of pathogen? Did, did, did something actually affect people, their breathing, their, 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 their pulmonary response, etc.? Well, yes, the fact of the matter is something happened, particularly to our elderly high-risk people, that many of them died. And um, the question is, was it, was it entirely due, initially due to this thing that they were exposed to, let's say the coronavirus, um, or was it due to, to the lockdowns? You know, there's another argument that we could introduce, some of, some of the deaths and, and harms. Was it due to how they were treated in the medical system? You know? Well, and, I think that the, um, the, the cause is complicated because people mostly didn't just die at, at home. They got hospitalized. And, you know, the lack of appropriate treatment in hospital contributed to the mortality. You're right that um, the, the risk stratification, a thousandfold or greater difference between very young people and very old people in mortality risk in, in this illness is one thing that establishes that it's real, that it's a real illness, because that is much less uh, typical for flu, RSV virus, and other respiratory viruses. And the other thing is that when people in the the first year of, of the virus got really sick, for the, for the people who did get really sick, the pneumonia that they got was an atypical pneumonia. It was different than the, the, a flu-related kind of acute respiratory distress syndrome pneumonia. It, it was a, a COVID type of that that's distinguishable. And those facts tell you that this is a real organism and it's a different one than anything that we've had before, either qualitatively different as a totally new organism, or at least quantitatively different in the, the various uh, things that one observes that make it a unique syndrome. So that established before even we had knowledge of the <laughs> organism itself, the genetics, and pathophysiology of the organism itself that that we were dealing with something that was new and real and and then you know it didn't take more than a month of biological studies to characterize the virus itself its genetics um it, its physical structure and all of those things i i think that one has to trust at some level basic science and and common sense observations you know, to to establish that we really are in the midst of a new infectious disease that had not acted this way to any degree. Obviously, we we have we live in a sea of coronaviruses that cause common colds and other things, but this is totally different than any of those things. In in the things that I said that make this a new syndrome, and and there's no real argument I think from informed people about that. Well, I agree with you on them. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who, you know, you go and you give conferences and they come up to you and they say, well, how do you prove this? And how do you see that? And uh, one of the things that I tell them right out front is that, you know, <clears throat> the, um, the antiviral uh, medications, therapeutics work and effectively um, when symptoms initially develop and people, uh, you know, are exposed or infected, especially vulnerable people. So, it's working on something. So it's not, you know, like people have all these bizarre ideas that, you know, this was not real and there's no 
virus, there's no pathogen. I said, well, well then what was killing, what has killed uh, elderly people? So I, I like how you said it, you know, inform people and you take some common sense to the table. <clears throat> what we saw, we did lose people to this pathogen. Um, I think the real challenge as time goes by is to figure out, you know, how did this happen? Was this was this really um, a laboratory manufactured? Some laboratory somewhere, um, uh, you know, because there's all kinds of different discussions right now. It, did this really originate in, in China, in Wuhan? Did this originate actually in the United States? Um, there's even discussion right now about Ukraine. I mean, all sorts of discussions. <clears throat> and I think the next important issue is, was this deliberate? Or was this an accident? And um, I tend to believe it was an accident. I don't believe that. I know there are people who who are subversive, just in their own minds and in their own ideologies or whatever. But I don't believe that there were people. I might be stand corrected, but I don't believe that this particular issue was deliberately released. I believe. I don't. I don't think that the, the the people who worked on it who engineered it, had the intention of deliberately releasing it. It's possible that somebody could have gotten into the laboratory or somebody who worked at the laboratory who was untrustworthy, who might have thought to do this. But I think that the official people working on this, by and large, did not intend to release it. That having said, there's no question that this was biologically engineered. There, There is too many features of the genetics of, of this virus that are completely impossible to have occurred by chance and do not exist anywhere else in the viral kingdom, so to speak, the, in, among viruses, among any other organisms that have been cataloged in the 100,000 organisms that are in the, the US NIH research database. So that makes this completely unique and impossible to have derived from any other other kinds of related viruses without engineering. <clears throat> and, and so the engineering makes this something that was manufactured, it was developed, created, but it doesn't make it something that was deliberately released. Now, where that could have happened, it could have happened through the actions of multiple labs, in fact, probably did. It probably involved the laboratory, the viral laboratories in Winnipeg, in Canada. It probably involved NIH researchers and NIH funding. It involved Moderna that we know contributed some of the the, um, the, the, the the materials that were used in research to make this. And the Wuhan Institute of Virology was also actively working on this. So if the WIV was the place where it leaked from, that was on, would have been only the last stage, the last step in the process that was being developed elsewhere in the world before and during. And it's hard to say, you know, exactly one place might have been involved. It, it might, you know, it could have been multiple places and multiple research groups and multiple funding and multiple motivations. But that got it out, but leaked from likely from one lab, and we don't know for sure that it was WIV. But given that the first large cluster of, of cases seems to have been in and around Wuhan, that that points to the WIV as the place, but it's not proof really. And uh, once again, I agree that, and I've been trying to say that myself. And um, the thing is, 
I think, um, <clears throat> you know, the timeline as to when it began is so interesting now to us because we are getting all sorts of, I mean, I, 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 somebody in one of the groups who were involved with shared some information recently about uh, potential cases um, uh, from about March of 2019, which actually like blew my mind in the sense of if that were actually verified, you know, that changes a lot of the discussion. And then, uh, you know, it made me think, you know, it is, it is entirely possible that everything you just said be true, including <clears throat> that when it did get out by accident, it happened before and that it was operating in a very low benign way, um, escaping capture by any uh, surveillance systems, any hospitals, whatever, because there was no case definition for anything. There was no, no one was looking for anything and maybe it might be that people earlier on, elderly vulnerable people who succumbed, um, got captured in either cold or flu, et cetera. And, um, but- Right, it was actually, unrecognized, that, that's right. So the case yeah. might've been occurring. Most of them might've been asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic and the severe ones weren't recognized as COVID yet. They were recognized as some kind of severe respiratory viral syndrome that people were might have been puzzled over or just considered to be severe flu and not thinking about it more, not paying attention to the differences. So there was, it didn't really get to the level of medical consciousness, shall we say, yes. until much later. That's right. But the key, but, the, but it's a very interesting question that I'll pose to you, Dr. Rich, that some say, and you know, even I myself, I'm thinking about it, that, um, that, that had they not bring forth the uh, RT-PCR test, and we know all of the flaws of it being overcycled and all of that, oversensitive, but had they not bring that, brought that forward, that some argue that um, this would have continued on below the level of consciousness. And um, had we not done the non-pharmaceutical uh, interventions like the lockdowns and put, put pressure on the pathogen, so to speak, that um, some even now argue, and I mean, I'm asking your view because you might say that's a lot of, of uh, that, that doesn't make sense, but I'm just, I'm, I'm playing with it in my mind too. <clears throat> some say that maybe if it was circulating prior at a low level benign and um, killing people as a influenza-like illness, pneumonia type illness would kill elderly, et cetera, but it was captured in, under like granny died of a flu because granny was 85 with two underlying medical conditions. So she succumbed sadly, but it was not due to flu, it was due to this. Um, but, the, but the pressure that we placed on this benign um, non-lethal pathogen initially, that by placing that pressure, by locking down, closing schools, all these things, um, we drove an initial mutation that changed it and it became a little more lethal um, virulent and therefore that accounted for those deaths that we saw in like April May in America etc and 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 with that with that um, <clears throat> all of the paranoia and panic with with kicking elderly out of the hospital and sending them to the nursing homes and infected people in nursing homes, send them to emergency room quickly 
and they were very badly treated and mishandled and sedated and all these crazy things. And then that caused deaths now to accumulate, et cetera. What do you think of that? Well, I think that um, the PCR test, uh, I guess I would say, giving it the scientific benefit of the doubt, does detect or did detect uh, novel sequence RNA or sequences that um, were that do, do not get triggered by the flu virus, for example, or other coronaviruses. I, I think that it was that even though it was highly error prone and in, in certain ways, I think that it, it was a real thing. And so it was detecting something that was out there. And, and I don't think that necessarily. So it's a separate question from whether the lockdowns enhanced the mutations and drove this to be more lethal than it already was. I think that mm -hmm. that there were already fatal cases occurring in Washington state, if I'm not mistaken, that were before the lockdowns. And and so it, it's not really such a, a big question um, in, in, in that way. I think that it's going to be interesting to try to figure that out, but I don't know that we'll be able to understand exactly the effect of the lockdowns on the substrain, strain and substrain diversity. So that's going to take some more kind of epidemiological groundwork uh, of, of looking at the, the spread of cases by genetic, by viral genetics, by ge geography, which hasn't been done so much except between countries. And I don't know if that's fine enough. Let me just say that at this point, we're uh, approaching our, our break time. So we'll be back shortly. And, and listeners, please stay tuned. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Falker with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. For 40 years, alarmists have been warning of a climate catastrophe, yet none of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared, sea level rise has not been unusual, and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. In short, there is no climate emergency. For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a made-in-America climate plan, a plan based on real science that responds to the real-world needs of Americans, supports economic growth, and strengthens our essential infrastructure, a plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website, icsc-climate.com. Welcome back. We're, uh, this is Dr. Harvey Rich with Dr. Paul Alexander. We were just talking about the PCR test and for COVID-19 and, and whether 
that really affected the uh, diversity of uh, development of, of strains of, of the, the virus that led to differences in its virulence. Uh, one thing I would say about the PCR test, though, is that it, as bad as the idea that the, the cycle threshold for calling the test positive was too high and was detecting viral fragments, those viral fragments were probably real and, pro and likely indicated an infection from weeks in the past. So yeah. at, proper, at a proper low threshold for, for the, 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 the PCR test has relatively poor, what we call sensitivity and specificity. That means that, it, that no matter where you set the cycle threshold to call a test positive, it's gonna have either a large false positive rate or a large false negative rate. And it's a trade-off between the two and there's no perfect place. And so where the test is set clinically at 40 or more cycles, there is a very large false positivity rate because at uh, uh, when the test is positive at 20 or 24 cycles, it means there's an active infectious virus that's being detected. When it's positive, when it's set at 40 cycles or even higher, it means that it's detecting fragments of the virus that have been left over and not cleared from weeks in the past. And, and that means that, and there's and studies have looked at by the, this test positivity according to asking people when they had had COVID. And it turns out that people who had had COVID four to six weeks in the past were still testing positive at these very high cycle threshold levels. So it isn't that it's a true, a real false positive, it's a true positive, but not for infectious virus, for old leftover viral fragments, that means these people are now immune and, and did have COVID in the past, but they were being treated as if they had active infection and being asked to quarantine and the, the, the people were being freaking out and, and wanting treatment and all these things for something that they had already gotten over, that they already had and gotten over, recovered from, and should have just moved on and categorize them as old infection, not new active infection. So this was manipulated to increase the counts of people who had active COVID, even though they didn't, they had had past um, COVID that was largely asymptomatic or very mildly symptomatic. So the people didn't do anything about it other than get tested either because of their mild symptoms that dragged on or because um, they were tested for other reasons like their employer made them test or a family member was sick or, or something like that. And so they got tested. Yeah, I agree with you, sir. And uh, I think that's a very important distinction because I think that's what was getting lost in uh, when we when when it was declared that these are um, false positives or the, the, this was uh, viral dust or fragments. What you're saying is, you know, it is likely that they were really infected with COVID before have recovered so for what we need now you know um they they don't have active virus now they're not infectious now etc um but then you're still closing schools and locking the society down so i think that was the issue the issue is are these people problematic today and um and that was uh that was missed and uh, and i think that hurt the society right it did especially and in fact it, it was a bigger problem because we were telling people that they were positive when it was irrelevant for their their management. And yes. 
And uh, the other thing is people, because of that, because people were being told they were positive, but by that point they had no symptoms, they were claiming, people started to claim, well, maybe the test can't distinguish between flu and, and COVID. And, uh, but, but that's not true. Um, I think people misunderstood that if the test is negative, if the COVID PCR test is negative, it doesn't mean that they might not have flu. Um, it doesn't test for flu. And so people were confused about that. And they thought that a, the, the test in general meant that they could have flu and test positive for, for COVID, but that's not true. The test is specific enough to distinguish COVID or, or in one of its either infectious or past states or no COVID. It says nothing about whether they might have or might have had flu. Yeah. And, um, you know, <clears throat> I think one of the biggest uh, statements that doomed the pandemic, that doomed the response, Dr. Rich, early out to the gate by uh, the task force members, which they signaled and they stated, which I think scared all of the parents, especially, um, yeah, the parents and, 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 and people, was that <clears throat> we were all at equal risk of outcome, severe outcome, actually, if exposed, regardless of age. And I think that that statement that illusion really scared people that you had parents locking away their 10 year old child who was basically at zero risk almost statistical zero risk of severe outcome or death treating that child like 85 year old granny who was who was sick with underlying medical conditions and um so many things in the beginning were said you know, like um, the issue about asymptomatic transmission, the issue about recurrent infections. Now, I have to have a caveat there that that's pre-Omicron era. <clears throat> Post-Omicron era, of course, uh, recurrent infections is, is par for course. But pre-Omicron era, you know, that was, it was almost as though, to me, the task force and those involved or in charge were making statements that they actually had no science, no data to back it up with. <laughs> I, I'm laughing because we know they had no science. We know they, they cherry-picked what science there was to make preconceived um, plans, you, you know, and, and uh, to support preconceived plans. And, and that's not scientific at all. And uh, I and others have written about this whole manipulation of, of the popular understanding uh, of scientific evidence as, as if what they've done has been scientific when it hasn't. It's just been propaganda with, with scientific words thrown in. And uh, this has been a very big problem because we live in such low scientific literacy that even people who do science, and, and or doctors, for example, can't even tell or chose not to tell that this was that all of this was propaganda that, that's been spread for the last three years, claiming that it's scientific when it's, you know, if you cherry pick studies, it's not science. That, that is just not scientific. Science has to be objective, letting the studies fall as they are, understanding each of the strengths and weaknesses of each study and, and so on. And just broadcasting that these five studies show what you want to show and ignoring the other 160 is just not science. You know, that, that, yeah. that's, that's been a very big problem during the, the pandemic. And um, it's something we've struggled to try to illuminate that that science is, is a way of thinking about evidence and information and not just a compilation of facts that you want to support your case. Um, exactly. 
and I, and I think one of the clear issues with that was the, 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 the establishment, those people in charge at CDC and NIH, et cetera, and, and all of them, I call them the talking head doctors on television, who denied the, um, <clears throat> the existence or the utility of natural, natural acquired immunity over the vaccinal immunity, knowing that the vaccine confers, like almost tries to mirror a best approximation of natural immunity. And that natural immunity, that exposure acquired adaptive immunity cannot be, I would use the word subservient to vaccine immunity. In, in fact, it's superior. And what's your take on that? Uh, that's obviously true because the vaccines have a number of what I would consider to be deficiencies, one of which yes. is that they target a narrower subset, a much narrower subset of the, the antigens on the surface of the virus so that the immune system only responds to essentially the spike protein and nothing more on the surface of the virus, but the virus has got a lot more and our natural immune systems respond to uh, a lot more of, of all of that, <clears throat> which means that when the spike protein changes and the other parts stay the same, we still retain more immunity to the related strains than that, that's wider than what the vaccines can do. The vaccines also have the problem of being so strong, of creating so much of an intense immune system response that it, it like it hypnotizes the immune system. It makes the immune system overpowered to do anything but respond to this gigantic stress signal of making uh, antibodies for the, the, the spike protein in the vaccine. And so that's called, um, lead, leads to anti antibody dependent enhancement in future infections where the, uh, the virus is now changed, it's got a somewhat different spike protein and the immune system is so hypnotized that it re-responds to the original uh, virus that it was first exposed to what's called original antigenic sin, that it, it responds to a lot to the original virus and not to the new one that's attacking it. So it'll still make some antibodies to the new one, but it's not as strong of a response as it would have been had it made only antibodies to, to the new virus. And the antibodies to the previous virus that it responds to still stick to the spike protein, but they're less good at neutralizing it. And so what happens in fact is that those antibodies from the original antibodies that it, uh, the immune system makes block the good antibodies from sticking to the virus. And therefore the immune response to the new slightly different virus is weaker than had it been a purely new antibody response. So the, the original vaccination is reducing the strength of future antibody responses to new or changed uh, viral particles, which, which is essentially damaging your response. And, and this is part of the motivation for why you need booster, you know, bivalent boosters or new valent boosters, the boosters to try to cope with the new strains, because the, the virus has easily um, mutated away from being limited by the vaccine. 
the viruses that have, so the reason that, that this virus does it and respiratory viruses in general do this is because their and the enzyme that they have that replicates the genetic information in the virus is very error prone. If we in our genetics had an error, had error prone enzymes to replicate our DNA, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't, we would just, we, we would have so many genetic, uh, so much genetic damage in the way we respond to everything in daily life that we would have died from other causes long ago at young ages, and we would never have gotten to be human beings at all. But viruses are very simple organisms. And so for them, when they, they don't really care whether, whether some mutations kill them because they make so many particles in each person that the ones that they make that work, that work just slightly better than the ones they started from, will likely get out and infect other people and propagate. And that's how the viruses do it, is by making so many mutations that something that they make is likely to get out and infect other people. And when it when that happens to a, a just noticeable difference that makes the new strain, the new substrain, the mutant substrain, just slightly better than the old one infecting people, then that is what propagates out. And we've seen this in real time just by looking at, for example, the CDC's webpage, every Friday it puts out a webpage showing the percentages of various substrains over the, the previous weeks up to the, the present. And it shows how these new substrains start off as very small percentages and grow over four to six weeks to peak. And in, and in some instances become the dominant strain and then get pushed out over the next four to six weeks by a new strain doing the same thing. And this happen, has happened over and over again. Although interestingly, the XBB.1.5 substrain seems to be taking a lot longer and other yes. substrains have not been able to push it out so much. Some We've seen some substrains start growing and peak, but not push out the XBB1.5 and then you know, go back down, showing that they were unable to compete with it. And the XBB.1.5 has pushed out the BQ1 substrains to the point that it's now 80 or 85% of everything across the United States and higher in the New York City area. And basically suggesting the interesting observation that XBB.1.5 is a stable strain that has reached the maximum uh, capability in its niche of infecting people, and other strains are just not able to mutate to better it. And that stability may be important because as pe more and more people have been exposed to it, and probably 70% of the general population has now had COVID, and a lot of that is to the, the XBB.1.5, that that means that there aren't going to be waves of COVID for a long time. That, and we're not in fact seeing a wave in the win this winter. We're seeing a bump that has gone up a little bit, but not dramatically compared to the five waves of COVID that we've been through in the last three years. So th it, this is showing that this infection is not seasonal and it's not um, uh, such a big infection. And certainly it's not a virulent infection at all, which is which is 
the, the major important feature of the Omicron strain. But the fact is that the XBB.1.5 has been so stable means that it's going to get pushed down further over time and will make the endemic feature of this virus lower, continue to be lower. In order to make an endemic virus that rises to an appreciable level in society, it has to continually evade immune the immune response, either by vaccine or natural immunity. And the fact that XBB is just staying around and not declining, getting pushed out by something else, means that natural immunity and maybe some vaccine immunity, but mostly natural immunity, is push is, is suppressing it. It's keeping it down. And that's a very important observation. Needs to be followed up to see whether that really spells the, the major end of the, the virus itself, which I'm optimistic for, you know, unless we see a new substrain pop up. And, but like I said, that hasn't happened. And that's a very important observation that we need to continue to watch. And, and hopefully it'll stay that way. But the important, the other important thing is that it's not seasonal. And that- That's a key issue. Right. And that means that we're not ever going to have a an effective booster vaccine that, that is available in time. So let's um, uh, take a break here. We're approaching our break time. So we'll be back very soon. Please stay tuned. AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Rich with Dr. Paul Alexander. We were just talking about something that I find very optimistic, which is that the current major strain circulating in, in the world in North America, XBB.1.5, it has been very stable and it's not getting pushed out and is showing that the virus is not particularly seasonal, even though two of the previous five waves of COVID that we've had have been in the winter months but we've had waves that are in other times and the current winter months are not showing a large wave like we had in the past, but a small bump of what has become an endemic virus. The idea about seasonality, interestingly, means that Australia 
and the southern hemisphere countries are not getting this virus, the new virus, six months in advance. It means that we don't have advanced knowledge of the mutations that are going to come out and become stable. And because of that, it means that we can't make boosters in a timely fashion that get to us before the, the, the current, the new wave would actually start. And that's what happened with the bivalent booster, that it was made at a time when the BQ4 and BQ5 virus substrains of Omicron were circulating. By the time it came out, those were 80 or 90% gone. The BQ1.1 strains had taken off and were largely circulating. The, the bivalent booster was weak for the BQ1 and 1.1 strains. And then Omicron uh, XBB.1.5 came out and the, the bivalent booster was even worse for that. So by the time the, the two to three months that it took to get the bivalent booster developed, produced and, and distributed for people to take, it was already out of date. And without seasonality and alternating, alternating seasonality in the Southern versus the Northern hemisphere, we have no way of knowing what the, the booster strain, substrain characteristics need to be in order to make a, a, the booster that's effective in a timely fashion. And that's where we, we have been now, whether we, if we make were to make an XVB.1.5 specific booster and that substrain stays around for a long time, that might be possible, but I'm guessing by the fact that it, we don't have a giant bump and by that the XBB is staying around pretty stable and not being displaced by new and different substrains, that it's going to go away on its own, largely. It'll stay endemic, but but will be reduced in numbers over time as we get in through the spring and summer months. And I, you know, unless we see something new start up, I'm very optimistic that most of what COVID most of what this virus is going to do has already been done and will be much less of an issue in the future as far as this particular virus is concerned. We've learned a lot from, from all this. We've learned a lot of things that we did completely wrong, completely backwards. And we don't know whether, uh, uh, Paul, as you said, the lockdowns created more viral diversity and more virulence in the virus, whether the vaccines have done that, they, they perhaps could have. Uh, we just, those are things to think about, but they're very difficult to study and prove conclusively. So it, it's really hard to know. I think my fear is that the, the large scale vaccination has reduced people's immune responsiveness to respiratory viruses more generally than, than just SARS-CoV-2, that RSV might have been stimulated um, to be symptomatic in people who would otherwise, without vaccination, be able to cope with it. That we'll, we haven't seen much of the flu, although there's been some flu this season. Um, we'll only know going forward in next year whether the flu will be more virulent or, more, or spread more widely because of potential damage from, from vaccination. This is um, difficult to know at this point, but it's kind of on the radar to be thinking about. You know, I, I think a lot of how you explained it and the transition from um, from the BA4, BA5, then the BQ1.1, then now the XBB1.5. And I agree, when you look at the CDC uh, printout every week, 
you see that it's very stable right now. And uh, I don't see anything majorly threatening it in the next week or two. And um, I find it's very encouraging, Dr. Rich, how you explained it, because it could be well that we're at the end with this XBB. And, um, you know, we just have to wait wait now and see. But but I think the key issue is this, this, uh, this gene injection, this uh, mRNA technology vaccine, um, <clears throat> would you say, because I am prepared to say that um, based on what we're seeing in the sense that recent studies that were published just this week showed that um, that uh, the, uh, the immunity from the vaccine wanes almost immediately now um, with the bivalent booster. So do you think that um, at this point it might be more prudent? Certainly infants and young children, I mean, unless... I mean, that's a personal decision I've always felt between a parent and their doctor, especially if your child is unhealthy. So who, who, who is you or I, who are you or I or anyone to tell someone what they can or cannot do? But, but a healthy child, I don't think, is, is, a, is a candidate. For, not I don't think, I, I, I'm saying is not a candidate for these shots based on the fact that it's almost zero that they would get severely ill or die from COVID. So... Do you not think it might be the right time now to stop these shots? Yes, absolutely. I think it's it's time to <clears throat> um, stop saying that the shots convey benefit for people in general. And I, it's possible perhaps to leave them on the market, but not to be promoting their use. That I think that the rationale for their use is in people who would be demonstrably at high risk of mortality from the illness itself. And that is a definable and very, very small segment of the population. It's people who have massive obesity, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, uh, are at the highest risk. People with who have chronic heart conditions, chronic kidney disease, um, perhaps people who are immunosuppressed can use a discussion about whether the vaccines would be useful or not. I used to think that in general, uh, people in the oldest age groups were also at increased risk, but maybe that's not true uh, if they are re relatively healthy, that people, the correlation yeah. between old age and having lots of comorbidities is, is a high one, because after all, our organs wear out over age. And, and um, so, there's a high correlation, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it, it's uh, uh, across the board recommendation. It should be people who indeed have these high comorbidities that need a discussion with their healthcare people, their doctors and so on, about whether the vaccines would convey benefit versus risk, because the vaccines are risky in, the, in that um, segment of the population. And so it's unclear that the risk from the, the COVID infection would be higher than the risk from the vaccines in, in those people. So th that's, I know that others think that the risk of vaccination is higher. That might be true. I don't know well enough to speak, but, but I think there's a discussion there. For everybody else, there's no question that the Omicron infection is not hazardous. It's unpleasant. Uh, it's a nuisance. But that doesn't make it life-threatening. It doesn't mean that it causes uh, appreciable amounts of long COVID. That, that is not true. Long COVID is, is probably misnamed. 
it should be long respiratory virus syndrome because long COVID is also caused by flu and other respiratory viruses. And the only thing that's unique about long COVID itself is that there, it can have a prolonged loss of the sense of smell and taste, which doesn't generally happen with other respiratory viruses. But everything else, the, the, the cough and um, other things of the long, long viral syndrome that, that can last are common to respiratory viruses in general, not just to the one we're dealing with COVID. So I, I think that it should be recognized that this is a general property and antivirals, if the virus is still around and other treatments are being used for people with long viral syndrome, long respiratory viral syndrome, and pretty effectively, and doctors are doing that, or at least doctors who are interested in treating patients are doing that and with, with a good deal of success. Um, and I've even heard of, of numbers of people who have prolonged loss of sense of smell who've gotten their smell back 100%. So that can take somewhere at some time, even as long as I know one person, it took a year and a half before she got her smell back, uh, but it came back. So uh, these are not how you manage the pandemic based on this. The idea that the vaccines should be used universally is just gone, long gone. The, the CDC said that the two doses of the vaccine provide minuscule benefit for um, getting the infection and transmitting the infection, and that the boosters provide a transient benefit that wanes. And as I've said many times, public health has to be supported by sustained policies, policies that reflect sustained benefits. Something that, that is transient and wanes is not sustained. We know that the uh, there's now been some meta-analyses of the length of benefit of the, the vaccines versus the length of benefit of natural immunity. Natural immunity stays around, stays longer, is, is it provides its benefit longer that, than the vaccine immunity. The vaccine immunity is can be some months Originally, in the two doses, it was up to maybe six months. Now it's probably, the, the boosters are probably three to four months. Um, and the bivalent booster, again, is probably in that three-month period, something like that. Whereas natural immunity is very good going on a year. It's like 75, 80% after 10 to 12 months and, and probably longer than that. So it's not perfect in the Omicron era. Neither one is perfect in those time frames, but it's still very strong. And, and from a public health perspective, the benefit of, of uh, recommending taking something that provides a transient benefit and that has its whole large list of adverse events, ad adverse effects that have been seen in the VARES database and people commonly know um, is just not a good trade-off, and it's not a good trade-off for young and health and/or healthy people who have no reason to fear getting COVID, other than the annoyance of dealing with it for a few days. Yeah, and so so therefore, in total, what you're saying is, if these vaccines are to, are to remain on market, they should just be offered, never ever mandated to anyone. Correct. Correct. Yeah. There's the only yeah. reason, the only grounds for a mandate is that they reduce the transmission to other people who can't protect themselves. And that those people would do 
poorly and have a life-threatening or hospitalizable illness. And that is just not the case in Omicron at all. So there's no reason for a mandate and the vaccines don't work well enough to do the job that the government, the public health administration requires uh, of vaccines. And they have adverse, substantial adverse uh, effects of them. So there is no, the rationale for the vaccine suppressing transmission, the CDC basically said it doesn't work. It doesn't work well enough to, to be a policy. Yeah. You know, you know, Doctor Wish. I think the question. I know you're going to be coming up to your break to to end this uh this uh interview today shortly. I think you know we have to step back and I have to be honest by saying this. You know, there have been a bunch of people in the in the beginning. You know, yourself being prominent, Doctor McCullough. You could say um Ladapo, myself, um, Doctor Vliet. These different people who've been hammering away and standing up even Dr. Gold, Simon Gold, all of these people from Dr. Ramanosqui. Um, but the issue is, I would like to say that even on our side, I mean, we've, we've dug in so deep on both sides. One side to me, I consider lunacy um, because they have not followed the science in any regard in terms of lockdown, school closures, nothing. And then you have on our side, on the other side, uh, what we have is a bunch of people who are experts now. We have camera people, we have real estate agents who are going up on stage speaking as COVID experts, and the public is confused. The public don't even know who to listen to anymore. Right. That's right. You know what I mean? But, the, but you know, science was confused. Um, when when medical journals and scientific journals were, were publishing nonsense studies because they went along with the narrative, and were blocking scientific studies because they had results that were counter to the narrative. Scientists were confused. They didn't know which studies to believe. They, they had to go and read them for themselves and that takes time. Doctors were confused. They had no idea about the medical literature and the whole system got, became a wild west. And so for the general public to see it as a wild west is, is just part and parcel of the whole game that's been played on us throughout the whole pandemic. And of course, this is inherent in the medical literature anyway, because there's so much pharma control of the medical journals through the editors and, and the reviewing process that it's difficult to know the, the truth of medical studies in general. And one has to, as, as a scientist, I have, have to read them and figure them out myself. And I never believe study conclusions that authors write anyway. I, I have to look at the, the paper more deeply. So we're kind of stuck in, in this wild west, you know, and, and I agree that credentialism, that the experts that we rely on have failed us as experts. And that's why real estate people and, and others who are smart people who've taken on the task of figuring things out for themselves have gained a certain degree of credibility. But, you know, I don't know how we can do anything other than not look at who's saying what is being said, but look at what is being said and trying to make sense yeah. of it. <clears throat> No, I, 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 I agree with you too on that, but I think though the, the public is very hungry and thirsty for just, just accurate information. And the public, I have realized, is very, uh, they're, they're massive critical thinkers and they've surprised me. Whilst the scientists, academic scientists and even medical doctors have failed us, many of them, um, by just going along with uh, the alphabet agencies, um, the, the, the public has been critical and um, and I think we owe a lot of thanks to them too because, <clears throat> you know, we've been standing there 
speaking and shouting and writing and stuff, but we needed a receptive audience. And, and I have to say we do have, we do have, but, but, but I think um, the time now, Dr. Rich, every time I speak, people come up to me and just basically say two things. The two things they always ask is this, we want accountability for the wrong things. We want it properly investigated and, and looked into. That's number one. And the next thing is they say, how do I get this thing out of me? Because I went and I took the shot because there are often are many people who've been vaccinated who come to our talks. And they say, how do I get it out of me? You know, I, I just want to rip everything inside of me out. You know, can I go somewhere? Can I take out all my blood and all of that stuff? And it's a very gut-wrenching conversation to have with people because you're very limited in the options that they have. Right. Well, I know. And um, uh, unfortunately, we're, we're really now out of time and we'll have to defer okay. that discussion. One thing I would just say is that the public hates hypocrisy. The public wants consistency. And when they see the hypocrisy in front of them, they know that they're being duped or tripped. And th that's a, a, a very important factor that there is wisdom out there and common sense out there. And we have to respect that and and, and be a part of that. And, and that, that's something that you've done a lot and, and I try to do as well. Well, so this is it for, for today. I hope everybody enjoyed our discussions. Please, if you have questions, send them to me at, at americaoutloud.com slash pulse. And Paul, I want to thank you for an amazing conversation this is this has been just really great and i look forward to you coming back again and and, and uh, conversing with us thanks everybody for listening and please come back next week <laughs>